Well, please turn your Bibles now to Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 15. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And one of the great privileges that we witness among our covenant children as they grow up in the church is that they are baptized. They're baptized as infants. They receive God's promises in baptism. And then parents in the church have the responsibility of teaching them the meaning of that baptism through catechesis and through the word. And so just as we have witnessed Edith Faith being baptized, we now go and turn to the word of God to be instructed and catechize ourselves in the meaning of God's promises. So Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, as you know, last week we uh, began our consideration of this chapter, and today we're going to consider, uh, continue our consideration of this chapter. I'd like to put before you the same question that I put before you last week. What should be coming forth from the pulpits of local churches? What should the teaching ministry within the church consist of? So please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy word, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, of course, there are potentially many, many things, hundreds if not thousands of things that the church could teach about each Sunday when the people of God gather for worship. If you think for a moment about the vast number of books and even podcasts that currently exist. There's an abundance of information out there. And so there are many, many things that the ch church could be teaching and preaching about. But Paul here does not leave the church in the dark when it comes to this question. 
You'll notice that in verse 1, Paul makes it very clear to Titus what he is to be teaching. He says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. As I mentioned last week, the contrast that Paul is making here in verse 1 is with the false teachers that he alludes to in chapter 1. There are false teachers in the various church plants on the island of Crete who are teaching unhealthy doctrine, errant doctrine, and this was leading to the ruin of whole families. Conversely, then, Titus is to do the very opposite. He is to teach healthy or errant doctrine which is meant to lead to the flourishing of men and women within the church of Jesus Christ. And so in this chapter, Paul, I mean, uh, Paul is telling Titus to teach two main things. He, on the one hand, is to teach the things that accord with sound doctrine. You can think of this as the good works that accord with sound doctrine. In verses 1 through 10, he addresses every adult demographic within the church and spells out what specific good works those specific demographics are called to. So he speaks to older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. And we considered those four demographics last week. Today we're going to consider what Paul has to say to Titus as a minister and what Paul has to say to slaves within these various church plants. Well, the second main thing that Paul tells Titus to teach is sound doctrine itself. And Paul defines sound doctrine in verses 11 through 14. This morning, then, what we're going to focus our attention on is, first of all, the good works that Paul is calling Titus as a minister and the slaves within these church plants to live according to. So that's the first main thing that we're going to consider. Second, we're going to reflect for a few moments upon the ordinariness of these good works that we see in verses 1 through 10. And then last of all, we're going to consider how Paul seeks to motivate us to these good works through this sound doctrine. So the sound doctrine is given to us in order to motivate us for good works. So we're going to consider uh, these last two demographics. We're going to consider uh, the ordinariness of these good works. And then last of all, we're going to consider the motivation that Paul gives for why we should do these good works. So you'll notice that in verses 7 through 8, Paul speaks to Titus as a minister. And he tells Titus what he should be focusing upon. And what Paul says here to Titus, by extension, could be applied generally to all pastors and to all elders. And so you'll see that in verses 7 through 8, Paul tells Titus to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, he says, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So Paul here in chapter 2 is not only telling Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, but he also is to model the good works that accord with sound doctrine. This point is helpful for us to remember the context of Crete. Crete was not a respectable middle-class society. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul quotes a 6th century philosopher who says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Cretans were known for gross debauchery. In fact, there was a verb that was created within the Greek language, kratizo, which refers to someone who is a liar, but it literally, refers, it literally means to play the Cretan. 
Cretans were known so much for being liars that a verb was created uh, to uh, refer to those who lie. And so again, remember what Paul is doing here. Paul is telling Titus to organize these church plants that he had started on the island of Crete. And the question that comes to mind is, who is going to model the good works that accord with sound doctrine for these new converts living in the midst of a pagan, godless society? Well, Paul says that Titus, and by extension, the pastors, elders, and ministers that Titus will appoint will fill this void. Now, this word, that mod- this word, mo- this word model that Paul uses is, uh, in Greek, the word tupos. It's the word that uh, brings about the, the category of topology that we oftentimes speak about in, la- in reference to the Old Testament. But in the historical context, the, the broader Greco-Roman society, this word, this word model that's, that's translated here in, in, in our English Bibles, was used to refer to how an object would make an impression upon a surface. And so if you had a great stone, a great boulder, and you would move that boulder, that stone, there would be an impression left on the ground. And that was referred to as a type or a model. And Paul in Romans 5 and the author of the Hebrews uses this same word to refer to how the people, the themes, and the institutions of the Old Testament foreshadowed the perfect work of Christ ahead of time. And so those themes, those people, those institutions were types, were models of Christ ahead of time. And so here Paul is employing the same word to refer to how pastors and elders are models. Imperfect examples of the perfect good works that God's God's law calls each of us to. Now what Paul says to Titus here assumes, or you could say uh, presumes, that we as church members actually know our pastor. We actually know our elders. The type of church that Paul is describing in Titus 2 is a church that's small enough that members actually know their shepherd. One way you can think about meaningful membership is when congregants or members know their pastor and elders, and their pastor and elders know them. That's really at the heart of what it means to be formally committed and meaningful, meaningfully committed to a local church. So here Paul instructs Titus, but by extension, all pastors, all shepherds, all elders within the church of Jesus Christ. We'll also notice that last of all, here in verses 1 through 10, Paul addresses slaves. And he does this in verses 9 through 10. Now, in verses 9 through 10, Paul gives four four things that slaves are to do, um, or I should say two things that they are to do and and two things they are not to do. So he calls them to be submissive, he calls them to be faithful, and then negatively, he calls them not to be argumentative, and he says they are not to pilfer, which refers to uh, skimming profits from from one's business for the sake of one's own wealth or, 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 or pocket. Now, many commentators, as they've reflected upon these verses, have stated that what Paul says to slaves here can be appropriately applied to us in our common daily vocations, Monday through Friday. So when it comes to your job in the workplace, you are to be submissive to the authority figures over you. You are not to be argumentative. 
You are not to steal. And you are, um, uh, you are to be faithful in all things, diligent in your work. Now, I think the, that uh, we can appropriately apply what Paul says here to our daily vocations, but I do want to spend a few moments to reflect upon Paul's reference here to slaves. Because in the historical context, he is not addressing freedmen in their daily vocations. He's specifically addressing slaves and their relationship to their master and their daily work. So I'd like to spend a few moments reflecting upon Paul's address and reference here to the institution of slavery. Now, first of all, we need to recognize that there's categorical difference, a vast difference between how slavery functioned in the first century under the Roman Empire and how slavery was practiced in the American South. Uh, we don't have time to go into some of those differences, but there, there, there were differences between uh, how slavery functioned in, in our history and how slavery functioned um, in the Roman Empire. But we do see uh, throughout Paul's epistles that he condemns the institution of slavery. So, for instance, in many of his epistles, he will address husbands, wives, parents, children, and slaves and masters. And when he addresses husbands and wives, he ordinarily also gives a theological ground for the institution of marriage. He'll root marriage in creation. When he addresses parents and children, he grounds that relationship and the institution of the family in the fifth commandment. But when Paul addresses slaves and masters, he never provides a theological ground for the institution of slavery, which at the very least tells us that slavery was not divinely ordained. Furthermore, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul tells us that God's law forbids and condemns enslavers, those who have slaves. And so we see that this practice is something that's condemned and forbidden by God's eternal and unchanging law. Now, what may be perplexing for us at this moment is, is why does Paul then still call slaves to submit to their masters and everything? Why doesn't he tell them to revolt, to seek their freedom? Why doesn't he, as an apostle, seek to overturn this vile institution that existed under the Roman Empire? It's an interesting question to think about. Well, one commentator very helpfully says in reflecting upon these verses he notes that the apostles were not political revolutionaries. They were rather evangelists of a spiritual gospel. Uh, this really is what Jesus says in John's gospel when he says, My kingdom is not of this world. The Bible, the New Testament particularly, um, repeatedly urges Christians to live godly lives in the midst of an evil society. Now recall for a few moments what we reflected upon in the first four verses of Titus chapter 1. In the first four verses, Paul very clearly stipulates the mission of his apostleship. Paul does not say that he was made an apostle in order to draft resolutions to the Roman Senate or to Caesar Augustus on the hot-button issues that, were, that existed in the first century Roman world. No, Paul says that he was divinely made an apostle very, for a very specific and narrow purpose. And what was that purpose? To build up the faith, knowledge, and hope of the elect of God through the instrumentation of preaching. Furthermore, remember what we reflected upon in Titus 1 verse 9 in the authority of the church. Pastors and elders have the authority to teach and discipline not according 
to their political ideology, but only in accordance to the trustworthy word as taught, which what that means for us in the 21st century is we can teach and discipline according to the trustworthy word as taught, confessed, and summarized in the creeds and confessions of the church. And thus Paul is unequivocally clear, even in the context of this own epistle, that the church has a spiritual mission with a spiritual authority. Now this point is what separates confessional churches, so churches of the, uh, that draw their origins from the Reformation that subscribe to a historic confession of faith from non-confessional churches. Uh, churches that don't subscribe to a historic confession of faith, whether those churches be mainline liberal churches or conservative evangelical churches. Non-confessional churches, whether they be mainline liberal churches or very conservative evangelical churches, they're completely on the same page in wanting to add to the spiritual mission of the church of Jesus Christ. Ordinarily, they're not content with the church merely existing to build up the faith, hope, and knowledge of the elect of God through preaching. They want the church also to exist in order to transform culture in a political manner. Now, these churches will differ in terms of their intended goal for culture. Some will have a conservative agenda. Some will have a progressive agenda. But they have the same ecclesiology. They want to add to the spiritual mission of the church that we see revealed here in Titus and elsewhere. While confessional churches, churches that draw their origins the Reformation, subscribe to a historic confession of faith, they seek to preach the law and the gospel with all authority and then urge their parishioners to live wise lives in the midst of this evil and godless age. And so, Paul here in verses 1 through 10 urges every adult demographic within the church, within the churches on Crete, to live lives of good works. Whether you're an older man, an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman, whether you're a pastor, an elder, a minister, whether you're a slave, everyone is called to a life of good works. Now, I'd like to reflect just for a few moments here on the ordinariness of these good works. The good works that Paul lists here are, are quite ordinary. Now, if you just uh, think for a moment, if I were to ask you, what does it mean to be a successful older man and older women? What does it mean to be successful as a younger man or a younger woman? What does it mean to be successful in your career or as an officer within the church? I would wager a bet that most people may not immediately respond by listing the virtues that Paul lists in verses 1 through 10. These virtues are not flashy. They're very ordinary. I think it's important for us to reflect on the, how ordinary these good works are. Uh, the American mindset very much has baptized ambition as our national virtue. The American dream and ambition are, are pretty much synonyms. We can be whoever we want to be, and we can do whatever we want to do. Now, biblically speaking, and even historically speaking, ambition was viewed as a vice, and contentment was viewed as a virtue. However, our current cultural mindset has turned the vice of ambition into a virtue and says contentment merely restricts upward mobility. Now, ambition, like most other vices, is a God-given desire that, turn, that's, that has turned in on itself. So ambition takes the God-given desire for work and twist that desire for our own glory. So that we, now we desire to work, we desire to pursue wealth, not for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, but for our, own, for our own status, for our own wealth, for our own glory. 
Ambition causes us to reach for the stars and wants nothing to hold us back in the process. I think this is part of the reason why we see people pushing off marriage, people pushing off having kids, people not wanting to formally commit to institutions in their local communities, including the church, because all of these things restrict our autonomy, our freedom, and our, our ambition. And we live in, in the midst of a culture that prioritizes and elevates ambition as the ultimate virtue. And so it's important for us to reflect upon what our goal is in life. Is our goal, goal merely status, wealth, prosperity, a comfortable life, or is it to become the type of virtuous people that Paul describes here in verses 1 through 10? Our goal in life should be to become the type of older men, older women, younger men, younger women that Paul describes here in Titus chapter 2. Well, as we seek to live a life of ordinary good works, what motivates us? Well, Paul here in both verse 5 and verse 9 gives us a single motivation, but he, he presents two sides of the single motivation. So you'll notice in verse 5, Paul addresses the younger women, and he says that they are to lead virtuous lives in order that the word of God may not be reviled. And then the other side of this motivation is found in verse 9, as Paul addresses slaves and calls them to live virtuous lives. And he says uh, they are to do this for the purpose of adorning the sound doctrine of the grace of God. So Paul here alludes to the word of God. Paul here alludes to the sound doctrine that we either revile or or, uh, adorn with our good works. Now, what is this sound doctrine? Well, as I said last week, this sound doctrine is defined for us in verses 11 through 14. And this sound doctrine is defined as the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's It's the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ both saves and sanctifies. It both redeems and purifies. And Paul says that it's this sound doctrine that motivates our good works. And particularly, he says that our conduct will either revile or adorn this sound doctrine of the grace of of God uh, located in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this word adorn that Paul uh, uses literally refers to something having an attractive appearance through decoration. And this word is used on a number of occasions throughout the New Testament. It's sometimes used in reference to things, and sometimes it's used in reference to people. So in Revelation 21, John uses it to refer to how the church is like a bride adorned for her husband. Just as a bride uh, puts on a, a beautiful dress and jewelry to adorn herself for her husband, Um, Paul is saying the church is adorned for her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this word is also used in reference to the Jerusalem temple. The Jerusalem temple is said to have been adorned with beautiful and costly stones. Now, in Titus 2.10, Paul is using this word figuratively to refer to how our good works adorn the sound doctrine of the gospel. At this point, it's important that we realize the distinction that Paul's making here. He's not saying that our good works are the gospel. He's not saying that people are saved through our good works. Rather, he's saying our good works adorn or beautify the gospel of the grace of God. So let's say, for instance, in your job, you're not submissive to authority figures. You're argumentative. You steal. 
you uh, are not faithful or diligent in your work. And you profess to believe the gospel, the grace of God that both saves and sanctifies, redeems and purifies. Now, what are you doing in the eyes of your unbelieving co-workers? You're not adorning the gospel, the grace of God. You're reviling it through your conduct. One of the reasons why I think Paul may be singling out slaves when it comes to this motivation in verses 9 and 10 is because in the historical context, there were many slaves, Christian slaves, who had non-Christian masters. And so through the faithful, virtuous conduct of these slaves, they would be building a platform uh, through which the church could sow gospel seed into the hearts of these unbelieving masters. And so talk about adding value to our work, our ordinary work, our mundane work. Through our ordinary work throughout the, the week, as we seek to live virtuous and faithful lives, we are building a platform that as opportunity provides, we will be able to sow gospel seed into the hearts of our unbelieving neighbors, friends, and co-workers. This is the motivation that Paul is giving us. And boys and girls, you may remember that this is one of the motivations that our catechism speaks about. In question answer 86, it asks, since then we've been redeemed by Christ without any merit of our own. Why must we do good works? And the last motivation that's stipulated is that our neighbors may also be won over to Christ. That's the motivation that Paul's articulating here in Titus chapter 2. And so, again, to return to that opening question I put before you, what should the church be teaching? What should the church be focusing upon in her pulpit, pulpit ministry? Well, Paul, again, is unequivocally clear here. The church is to preach and teach to the people of God that they are to live lives of ordinary good works that adorn the gospel of the grace of God. Let us pray.